acorns are jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, for as a mouse is Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 188, Stuffed and Filled, Sunday, December 31st, 2017. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yinhu podcast has a Facebook page, and it's available on iTunes. For each episode, I post photographs, show notes, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. Today's episode features information about a contest, the back porch, the front porch, ever-expanding skill set, and so forth. Good morning. It's a very early New Year's Eve. The Poconos are snowy and frigid. We returned from a few days in New York yesterday afternoon. It had snowed in the morning, and then we had a surprise additional dusting of snow in the evening yesterday. The moon was shining on the beautiful coating of snow in the evening before I went to bed. And this morning, I could hear the coyote on the ridge. They must have been traveling and barking in a small pack because I could hear them come closer and then move further away along the ridge on the opposite side of the creek. When everything is cold and hard and snow-covered, really interesting things happen with the sound. So it had a really eerie pre-dawn echo against, um, against the frozen creek, against the other side of the hill. It was sort of beautiful and strange and a little bit spooky at the same time. I hope you have had a wonderful holiday season and that you're in a very calm and tranquil place to ring in the new year and sort of be contemplative about what you want, um, how you will shape your new year and the new opportunities that present themselves. I've been doing quite a bit of thinking about that and quite a bit of knitting and crafting over my holiday break as well. Before I get started with the regular 
segments of the podcast, I just want to remind listeners that we have a contest going. It will continue until I record the next episode, probably in about a week or so. It's sponsored by Pam of Fibercrafty. Fibercrafty is an online marketplace for knitters and spinners. It's a shop with lots of different proprietors and purveyors of different supplies and notions. In order to promote her Fibercrafty marketplace, Pam is offering up a prize package which consists of a Fibercrafty project bag, a lip balm, and some hand-spun lace weight yarn. So a little more about this yarn because I don't think I was very specific about exactly how special this is on the last episode. Pam spun up some beautiful fiber from Shari Arts, who is one of the purveyors that sells fiber on this Fibercrafty marketplace. The fiber is a merino silk bamboo blend, and Pam spun it into 730 yards of gorgeous lace weight yarn. The colors are sort of in the pink family. I will provide a photograph of this yarn, the project bag, the lip balm, on my website. And it's also, there's a photograph of it on the Ravelry group because this is a contest that's running on the Yarns at Yin Hu Ravelry group. All you need to do to enter is to be a member of the group and take a look at what's available on Fibercrafty and then share something about a product you like, what you'd like to see. If you are an indie dyer or you sell wares of your own, you might also have an inquiry for Pam or something you are looking for in terms of a marketplace. Uh, She's really interested in promoting her products and those folks who sell their things on the Fibercrafty website. And um, she's also interested in hearing more about what folks would like to see. So take a look, enter the contest, and you have about another week. So I'll be drawing probably the first week to 10 days in the new year when I record episode 189. The Back Porch. Since I recorded the previous episode, I have been working pretty consistently on the underwing mitts. It's a pattern by Erica Hooser for a fingerless mitt in stranded color work. The mitt features the moon phases at the cuff and then a beautiful moth design which is further intensified by taking a very highly contrasting color and doing some duplicate stitch just on the underwings of the moth. It's really a magical and and beautiful pattern, and I've been knitting that pretty much exclusively for a couple of weeks. I did complete these mitts when I was on my trip to New York City. I had some real quiet time in the morning while Samuel was sleeping in and I just, 
you know, slowly, methodically worked on all of the finishing details of these mitts while I was there. I used leftover yarn from a cowl project I knit for Samuel last year. It's a merino cashmere nylon blend. The cowl was in three colors and I just used a very pale gray and the black for the mitts. There is some very subtle color gradations in each of these yarns, but it's pretty consistent, pretty pure color that it looks like a a very pale gray and a black. And then for the duplicate stitch, I used a really bright orange color. And I just really love the way these came out. I followed the pattern directions with just a few modifications. I did knit these on a U.S. size one. I have narrow wrists, so the cuffs are a little bit big, but not overly so. They're they're comfortable. For the ribbing around the fingers and the thumb, I dropped down to a U.S. size zero for those, so I had just a little more stretch, and I was able to pull in the fabric a little bit more there. I also used a tubular cast-on and a sewn tubular bind-off to give them a really polished look. Another reason that these were so much fun to knit is that I was using a new set of double-pointed needles. I splurged and purchased the Luca double-pointed needle set that goes from size 0 to 8 or 9, I believe. So far, I've only used the zeros and the ones, and I have been thoroughly impressed with how beautiful, how smooth, and how strong these are. I didn't have any breakage or even feel nervous about breaking those needles as I was working with them and they were just wonderful for knitting with this merino cashmere nylon blend of yarn. I didn't wear the mitts in New York because I was scared to lose one of them. With having a bag and a hat and a scarf in this brutally cold weather, it's just so easy to drop or lose something And so even though I had these finished mitts, I did not take the opportunity to wear them when I was in the city. So I'm very much looking forward to wearing those in the coming days. And maybe sometime in the distant future, putting that moon phases and moth pattern onto a hat or even a cowl. I think it's It's just such a magical combination of shapes and images that it begs to be put on something else. Maybe, maybe, maybe on a breasty dress at some point. But I really enjoyed knitting them. The pattern was such a wonderful gift. Once again, that's the Underwing Mitts by Erica Huser. The front porch. On New Year's Eve, or in the wee hours of the morning on New Year's Day, 
I plan to cast on at least one design by Caitlin Hunter. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I have been thinking about and planning for the Aura shawl since the summertime. My pattern is a gift from Allison. Aura is Finnish for barley, and so the pattern design features something sort of reminiscent of grainy texture, and also the color of the sample in all of the photographs of the pattern has this beautiful muted golden color. And so in thinking about what sort of yarn and the colors that I wanted to use for the shawl, I kept that in mind. And I will be using a combination of three colors of Samite yarn from Blacker Yarns. One is the leftover Bursting Fig, which is a sort of a brownish purple color. And then I also have Frozen Bud, which is the most delicate lilac or lavender color and wild bees hum which is a heathery mustard color to help stretch my uh, fig color just a little bit I'm, I'm not even sure what yarn this is Mavis I'm not sure the company but I have some yarn it's a little bit different in its fiber content and the way it's spun, but the color is very, very similar to Bursting Fig. So I think I will use that yarn to help stretch the amount of yardage I can get. And also because there are a number of tassels on this very large shawl, and that might assist me with the tassel making if I have this extra yarn. One thing I learned since mentioning this on episode 187 is that it's been detected by knitters who've knit the Aura shawl that the pattern directions do not yield the size of shawl that's pictured in the sample photos. Uh, I was clued into this by Shayna Littleleaf who made a post on my last episode and it prompted me to look a little more carefully at the project notes for this shawl. Apparently this was first discovered and articulated by someone on Ravelry named LB65 who added some pattern modifications that will help yield a much larger shawl. I am interested in a much larger shawl because I want the warmth and the coverage and also because the put up on Blacker Yarn Samite is pretty substantial and I want to use as much of this yarn as possible in the design. So I think I will be following LB65's pattern modifications. I have favorited a couple different modifications and explanations from folks who have knit this shawl already and I think they will be very helpful as I begin to work on mine. I had considered just casting on three of the designs I want to knit from Caitlin Hunter. Um, also, I want to be working on the Ulu mitts and the cardamom coffee hat. Uh, 
I only have a pair of socks on the needles at the moment and one unfinished weaving project from the summer. So it wouldn't be inconceivable to cast on all of these projects over the course of today and tomorrow and then just continue working on them in the new year. I haven't quite decided whether I will do that, but I am eager to work on all three of these and also in the maybe somewhat distant future, the Tegna top. I'm just not certain that I have enough yardage to complete that project, so I have to think a little bit more carefully about my yarn choices for that before I move forward. If you are casting on, or in the case of Shana Littleleaf, continuing the Ora shawl, I would love to hear from you and knit along with you. So let me know if you're working on that. Once again, the projects I mentioned are the Ora shawl, the Ulu mitts, and the cardamom coffee hat, all designed by Caitlin Hunter. Ever-expanding skill set. I was determined during the month of December to work on some stuffed and filled recipes, some things I had never tried before. I love stuffed and filled type things from every cuisine. My favorite food group is things stuffed inside other things. I just love that surprise. I love the way it expresses bounty and generosity, particularly around the holidays. And so I followed through with my initial idea for a savory dish, and also I tried a sweet recipe, something that my sister and my mother have made, but I had never tried these particular cookies. So for the savory dish, I mentioned that I wanted to combine mashed potato and some of the pulled pork that I had made and reserved in the freezer and make a delicious ravioli. Samuel assisted me. Actually, he took the lead with the stuffing and the filling roll. We used wonton wrappers, square wonton wrappers, and I just put the potato, probably one part potato to two parts pulled pork into my food processor and just minced it to give it a much finer texture. I didn't really add anything else in terms of flavor or for texture or color, just those two ingredients which had a lot going for them already. Samuel took tablespoon sized amounts and he put them between two wonton wrappers. You just dip your finger in a bowl of water and wet the sides of the wonton wrapper and then press them together and you want to make sure that there aren't any air pockets. There's a cornstarch type of coating on the wonton wrappers that creates a glue and it seals them nicely. I really like the texture and consistency of the wonton wrappers as the dough, like a pasta dough for ravioli. They were, however, a little bit large. And so 
maybe with a future project, we might just use one wonton wrapper, less filling, and make a sort of a tortellini shape out of them. They were beautiful. They didn't stick together in the water as I was cooking them. I just brought the water up to a full boil and then I kept it more at a simmer. I didn't want anything agitating those ravioli or anything really aggressive in terms of a rolling boil because I didn't want them to break and come apart. So I just kept it more at a gentle simmer, cooked them for about five minutes and then lifted them from the pot. They did not stick together in the water. But once they were on the plate and we were dressing them with this really gorgeous, creamy mushroom sauce, they did stick together quite a bit. It was more like cutting through lasagna than eating ravioli. So I think that making smaller, individual, tortellini-shaped pasta might be more successful. The taste The texture, the consistency was exactly what I wanted. I wanted this really sumptuous, full flavor experience with the filled pasta, and it it was really, really wonderful. And I was thrilled that Samuel was so engaged in the stuffing and the filling, so it it was a nice uh, dinner to cook together. For the cookies, I turned to a recipe for Gewoldekuchen, which is a very traditional Dutch almond-filled pastry. It's usually made in rounds, but my mother and sister make them in crescents. It makes the recipe stretch a little further, and on a plate of Christmas cookies, It's nice to be able to have smaller things so that you can try a lot of different tastes without committing to one very large portion of something. So the Dutch traditionally make them as filled rounds and we make ours as filled crescents. It starts with a very simple buttery dough which rests in the refrigerator to make it more pliable. This dough is very similar to that for the Czech Christmas cookies that I have made in the past. I cut out rounds using the largest size biscuit cutter that I have. And then I created a filling with almond paste and that's lightened and sort of fluffed up using some egg and some lemon juice grated lemon rind and a little bit of extra sugar to create a thick but a little bit frothier sort of filling. It's a little tricky getting that filling in the center and then folding and sealing these crescents but with a little patience it works out okay. They're brushed with an egg yolk and milk combination to give them a really nice sheen. And then it's typical to take some slivered almonds and just put a few on the top so that you, it's always nice when something is filled if the way it's decorated gives an indication of what's inside. And when you put out a big plate of cookies, it's also helpful for people who have aversions or allergies or preferences or something to be able to select 
what they would like to eat. And so the almonds decorating these crescents are the really good indication that there's a marzipan-like filling. These keep wonderfully. We have them in a tin and the one I ate yesterday is just as tasty, if not tastier, than when we had them right after baking. They're absolutely fantastic with a cup of very strong coffee. They're nice in the evening. I think they're a perfectly suitable breakfast food as well. And uh, I really like the tradition of stuffed and filled types of cookies around the holidays. So that's Gewuldekuchen. I did not follow a particular recipe that I found online. I kind of used an amalgamation of some of the different things I found on websites. Uh, I had neglected to copy my mother's recipe, and so it would be interesting to compare at some point in the future the differences between the flavor profile and then the recipe we used. I've been giving quite a bit of thought to how to proceed with hashtag power pantry and the culinary endeavors of this podcast for the year 2018. I had a suggestion from Sarah of the Fiber Trek podcast, and I think a few other listeners have mentioned along the way being interested in fermented foods. And two gifts that I received for the Christmas holidays sort of sealed the deal. And instead of working month by month in 2018, I'm going to focus for the entire year on fermentation and fermented foods. The two books that I received and that I've been reading on this topic are Wild Fermentation by Sander Elix Katz and Mastering the Art of Fermentation by Mary Carlin. My previous experience with fermented foods consists primarily of working with kombucha. Um, And I've been doing that over the summers for several years. I had a SCOBY that lasted me quite a few seasons. And then when I deemed it unfit for reuse, it's always difficult to tell because sometimes you can clean up a SCOBY and it continues working. But I think, the, I'm pretty certain that the one I had failed. And I was given a new one by Melissa. And I don't know that much about how a different SCOBY or a different formulation of this bacteria can result in a different food product, an improved or an inferior food product. But the SCOBY I received from Melissa this summer is yielding the best kombucha product that I've been able to generate since I started making kombucha. And instead of letting the SCOBY go dormant or semi-dormant over the winter months like I have been doing, I have decided to continue producing and drinking my kombucha throughout the year. So last night I was tending to it and making a new batch. 
I like to let my kombucha mature quite a bit for several weeks or even a month before harvesting because I like that really sour, really effervescent quality to my kombucha. And something that I've been doing with this new batch is that I use black tea, but I also add just one bag of ginger tea to the brew, and that gives it just a little bit of flavor besides just that black tea flavor and the bit of sweetness and the sour, the ginger, I think, adds a little more flavor dimension. When I harvest my kombucha, I pour it off into uh, flip-top bottles so that that effervescence stays in. And then I store it in the refrigerator and wash out the big jar rinse off my SCOBY in a little bit of a vinegar solution and try to keep everything as clean as possible without getting a ton of sediments because the SCOBY sort of gives off these little sediments over time and the tea creates sediments. So I like to clean all of the glassware that I use to produce my kombucha before I make the next batch. So that's what I did yesterday evening. And then I've just been paging through these two books thinking about what I might take on as a first new project. And I've been considering kefir, uh, but need to obtain some kefir grains before I can start that process. Another possibility is paneer, which is an Indian cheese-like substance that I have eaten quite often when I dine um, at Indian restaurants, but I have never even considered making something like that in my home. So those are some possibilities and who knows what else I might come up with before I actually commit to a new recipe or project. Fermented foods have really gained ground in terms of prominence and popularity over the past several years and I know that many Yarns at Yinhu listeners are already engaged in making fermented foods of their own. So my hope is that with a year-long conversation about what we're doing, what we're trying, what resources and literature or websites, video tutorials that you may have used for working on your own fermented foods, we can share those and share our stories and grow in our capacity for making and using fermented foods. We can also talk a bit about health benefits and things like that over time. It's been very interesting just reading the small amount that I have about the beneficial properties of these foods and how empowering it is to be able to make and store, kind of extend the life of fresh produce by fermenting it. And um, really what a post-apocalyptic and important skill it is to have in our ever-expanding skill set. I hope you will join me or just even listen along and learn something new. Maybe over the course of the year, something will spark your interest and you'll 
give fermented foods a try. And so forth. Even though I had every intention of working on the metamorphic dress, the fabric I have for that is a little bit lightweight. And the frigid, frigid temperatures of the past couple of weeks have prompted me to work on a dress in a wool blend instead. So I still do plan to work on that metamorphic dress at some point in the future. But over the past week, I have dipped into some fabric stash that's a wool blend. I'm not exactly sure of the content, but I found it in the back of a local fabric shop that sells mostly quilting cottons. And I'm always just yearning for some apparel fabrics there. And I found this wool blend. I wasn't exactly sure of the rest of the fiber content, but I had it laundered so that there wouldn't be anything mysterious happening with the fabric or shrinkage in the future. And another clue that it was fabric designed for apparel is that it was 62 inches wide from selvage to selvage. So it had, you know, really some substantial yardage to it because of that wide width. And I thought it would be perfect for the dress shirt by Merchant and Mills. This is a relaxed fitting dress with a bib front and a yoke with some fullness across the back and sleeves that are designed so that you could wear them rolled up or you could wear them ending sort of about the elbow length. In the reviews that I read about this pattern, I learned that it ran very large and so I would be wise to go down at least one size. So I cut out the smallest size, the size 8, and I worked on the pattern construction. I found the directions pretty clear and easy to follow. And when you work on something, you know, you have to get it to a certain point that you can put it on before you can really decide on the fit. So I attached the sleeves, I put the dress on, and it was really super tight across the back of the shoulders so much so that it was pulling and then the the fabric on the back of the dress was sort of pulling around and cupping my backside in a way that made my rear end look huge and when I looked at it from a side angle the dress sort of bulged in this unflattering way in the back It felt uncomfortable in my underarms and across the back of my shoulders. At this point, it was about 10.30 at night, and I needed to stop working on this dress before something terrible happened, (laughs) because that's always the time when something bad happens. It's when you sort of push through into a later time than you really have the bandwidth to be working. So I put it all down and 
when I got up in the morning, I sort of turned over the problems that I was having in my mind. I was just sort of lying there in that half awake, half asleep state, kind of mulling over and letting my mind work over the this set of problems. And I decided that I would see if I had enough fabric to cut another back for the dress. And I did. Because I had bought this fabric with no particular pattern in mind. I bought everything that was on the bolt. And I knew when I cut out the dress that I had some leftover fabric, but I wasn't sure if it was enough for the back. It was not long enough of a piece for the front, um, but I had enough for the back. So I (laughs) unpicked almost every seam of this dress. I took off the sleeves. I took off the back and the yoke. And I even unpicked all the seam work around the front bib because I thought I could gain a little bit of space there, like maybe just over a half inch, if I reworked the seam so that I didn't have have quite such a large seam allowance. So I, I tightened up the seam allowance and then I cut a larger yoke. The yoke I cut out of the previous back of the dress. I just cut it right out of the center of the dress. And then I cut a new back for the dress and I cut a new yoke lining. The sleeves had plenty of fullness, so I just reserved the sleeves that I had cut for the first version of the dress. And I had enough uh, lining fabric. I had a really beautiful, beautiful Rifle Paper Company um, cotton, like a quilting cotton, but in a wonderful pinkish kind of pattern fabric for the yoke lining and the bib lining. So I cut another one of those for the lining and one in the main fabric. And then using this more generous cut, I reworked the whole dress and put it back together, sewed the sleeves on and tried it again. It's still a little bit small. If I made this dress again, I would go up, definitely go up to the size 10 and maybe even cut the back and the yoke a little bit fuller so that I had more room. The The body of the dress where it hangs at the hip is plenty full. There's more than enough fabric there. But across that back shoulder, I guess I just have wider shoulders than average for that size. It was really tugging and pulling and working at my underarms. So now it's it's a comfortable fit. I wore the dress in New York and I even wore it with a silk uh, undershirt just to for another layer of warmth and it was it wasn't overly comfortable, but it was fine um, for wearing all day. The fabric is wonderfully warm in this wool blend. And the bib front is just beautiful for showing off um, some bold jewelry 
or a shawl. I was really taken when I saw Mary Beth wearing her version of this dress, which she sewed in black fabric, at how well it showed off the shawl she was wearing in these really vibrant colors. And so I thought that would be a really versatile piece. I like the front of the dress especially. I think it's just beautiful and flowy. The back has a drop hem and I I really like that styling as well. It sort of has like a, a men's dress shirt sort of styling along the hem. Um, and I think the sleeves are nice and full. I like the way the sleeves are worked so that you can roll up the cuff and you have, you know, the beautiful right side of your fabric showing when you roll that cuff. I think that could be an interesting option for a contrasting cuff at some point. Um, and I love the bib detailing. The bib has two pieces and in many of the photographs, uh, folks cut that fabric on the bias. So you add some interest to that bib front as well. So that could be an option maybe for a future version of the dress. I'm not 100% pleased, but I did learn a lot in remaking this dress. Um, almost from the beginning, not quite, but almost from the beginning. Um, I learned a lot. I gained confidence in my skills and my abilities. That's something I never would have tried. I probably just would have scrapped the project a few years ago if I had come that far and I didn't have a satisfactory result. But being that I valued the fabric that I was using and that I really wanted something warm and in versatile black as a color, it kind of pushed me to keep working on the dress even though I faced a lot of frustrations. Since it's something that I plan to wear for many, many years, I took quite a bit of time and care on finishing the insides of the dress. This fabric frayed quite a bit and I wanted to preserve the fabric and the longevity of it. So I used my overedge foot on my uh, Janome Sewist machine to add edging to all of the inside seams. I finished off every inside seam of the dress and I did it in a really brilliant hot pink color. So it's always something that I see when I put the dress on and makes it sort of special and individual, unique to me. I also see that beautiful Rifle Paper Company lining on the bib and the yoke whenever the dress is hanging up and when I put it on. So that adds to the specialness of this dress. For me, it's a wardrobe staple especially during the fall and winter months. And as building my wardrobe and building staple pieces in my wardrobe has been a focus of 2017, I feel like it was a really special and meaningful final addition to my wardrobe in 2017.
Thank you so much for listening. I don't mention it every episode, but I am so incredibly grateful for your support of the podcast, your comments and your kind words, and the many opportunities for interaction that we have over knitting and cooking and other post-apocalyptic skills. The feedback and the, the energy and interaction I have with listeners is really an important part of my well-being and your enthusiasm for the podcast fuels my enthusiasm for creating new episodes, for expanding the content, and for finding things to share with you. I wish you a very peaceful and happy 2018, and I look forward to sharing and talking about the new challenges we face in our crafting and in our wellness over the course of the next year. Hey, comes jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass for as a mouse is It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. Leaves lay down like a lady waiting for a naked man. River bends like an elbow, turning stone to sand. It's a Jim, I'm gonna Six turkeys up in Munchin.
Yeah. 